My name's Darren Greenfield and Timothy Hyde at the back. We're going to co-teach this class. And I'm going to talk a little bit about IPM, which is Integrated Pest Management. But before we jump into that, because our gardens are a cooperative work between us and God, we work together and God uh, teaches us and he blesses us. Uh, so let's see what the Bible says about pests and, and dealing with pests. In Deuteronomy 28, uh, there's a few verses there, and it says, Now it shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all nations of the earth. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body, the produce of your ground, and the increase of your herds, the increase of your cattle, and the offspring of your flocks. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. But it shall come to pass if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes which I command you today that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. You shall carry much seed out to the field but gather little in for the locust shall consume it. So obedience to the Lord in both the the, uh, spiritual realm and in the physical realm. The Lord has given us instruction on how to do certain things. We should be observant of his his commands. In Amos 4.9, he says, I blasted you with blight and mildew when your gardens increased, your vineyards, your fig trees, and your olive trees. The locusts devoured them, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. So when we're dealing with pests, what should we do? We should go to the Lord, right? We should pray to him and we should say, Lord, is there anything you're trying to bring to my attention at this time um, when I'm dealing with these pests? And uh, let, him, uh, let him show you. It might be something that you're not thinking of. In Second Chronicles six twenty-eight to 31, it says, When there is famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, when their enemies besiege them in the land of their cities, Whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people Israel, when each one knows his own burden and his own grief and spreads out his hands to this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and give to everyone according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of the sons of men, that they may fear you to walk in, in your ways as long as they live in the land which you gave to our fathers. I've, um, well, let's read the next one. There's one more. Malachi 3, 8 through 12. You're probably familiar with these verses. But this one says, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, In what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Now don't underestimate what the Lord will do for you. It's amazing. I remember 
when I was, uh, I just had a garden uh, in our, outside our home in Michigan, and uh, we had been reading through a, a book called Over and Over Again. It was testimonies of, of people who had started tithing and, and um, had experienced God working blessings in, in very difficult situations. One of the stories was about this guy that had a garden and these uh, woodchucks were coming in and eating his produce and he realized he hadn't been paying a faithful tithe. I think that's how the story went. He decided to do that. No, I think what it was was he decided, you know what, I'm not tithing on my produce of my garden. So he started tithing on his produce and um, he went out and there this uh, stray dog, I believe, or several dogs came and chased away those woodchucks and he didn't have problems anymore. So I was walking outside with my wife and um, we had a little uh, garden there and, and there were rabbits that were getting in and eating stuff and I didn't have a fence around it at that point. And I said to my wife, I wish I had a gun so I could shoot those rabbits. And um, she was upset with me about that and I said, well, you know, they're eating our our uh, produce and just as I said that and we had made a decision after reading that thing that we were going to tithe on the produce of our garden and right then when I said that I wish I had a gun to shoot it I turned around and there came a fox out of the bushes and chased those rabbits away so you know the Lord I think is very interested in working with us and if we're faithful to him he can work miracles um, to to chase away the pests now, in the great controversy in nature, we're told this, and this is Child Guidance 46. Although the earth was blighted with the curse, nature was still to be man's lesson book. It could not now represent goodness only, for evil was everywhere present, marring earth and sea and air with its defiling touch. Where once was written only the character of God, the knowledge of good, was now written also the character of Satan, the knowledge of evil, from nature, which now revealed the knowledge of good and evil, man was continually to receive warning as to the results of sin. So we find that um, the natural world is a parallel to the spiritual world, and what we see going on in nature between good and evil is also what's going on in our hearts and our lives, and we can learn lessons from it. So as we deal with uh, these pests, then uh, we we can also be reflecting on what's happening spiritually in our lives and learn from it. Last quote here. Uh, this is from, uh, I believe it is Bible, one Bible commentary, triple one, two. Men were to cooperate with God in restoring the diseased land to health that it might be a praise and a glory to his name. And as the land they possessed would... If managed with skill and earnestness, produce its treasures, so their hearts, if controlled by God, would reflect his character. In the laws which God gave for the cultivation of the soil, he was giving the people opportunity to overcome their selfishness and become heavenly minded. Canaan would be to them as Eden if they obeyed the word of the Lord." Through them, the Lord designed to teach all the nations of the world how to cultivate the soil so that it would yield healthy fruit free from disease. The earth is the Lord's vineyard and is to be treated according to his plan. Those who cultivated the soil were to realize that they were doing God's service. They were as truly in their lot and place as were the men appointed to minister in the priesthood 
and in work connected with the tabernacle. When I read that, I was like, wow, this is a holy and high calling, you know, to, to be growing food and uh, working with God and nature because it's not just about making a livelihood. It's about our lives being prepared for, for heaven and others as well. So integrated pest management. I wish I could expand on that more, but we have a limited time, so we will get into this IPM program. It is uh, an ecosystem-based strategy that focuses on long-term prevention of pests or their damage through a combination of techniques such as biological control, habitat manipulation, modification of cultural practices, and use of resistant varieties. Pesticides are used only after monitoring indicates they are needed according to established guidelines and treatments are made with the goal of removing only the target organism. Pest control materials are selected and applied in a manner that minimizes risk to human health, beneficial and non-target organisms and the environment. So it's a very gradual process from doing everything naturally that you can to cooperate with nature to combat the pests and only if you have a, a really uh, a severe infestation that you resort to a pesticide and, um, and then you want to choose something that targets only the pest and doesn't harm the environment that the plants are growing in or human, uh, human health. So the very first principle with this is starting with soil health. Um, the class that Whitmar is, is teaching on soil uh, management or soil health is an excellent class to take. Uh, if you Obviously, you're not in it because you're here. But if you can listen to the class and you can learn the principles, take soil tests, follow the guidelines, apply what is recommended, and get your soil in the healthiest condition because if your soil is in the healthiest condition it can be, it makes your plants healthy. And just like we have an immune system, plants have an immune system that can combat the pests and disease as well. So you want them to be in, in the best condition possible, and that starts with soil health. Weed control. <clears throat> weeds provide habitat for pests. Weeds harbor disease. Weeds drastically reduce the yield. So keep the weeds out of your garden. Work when they're very small. When they're very tiny, it's very easy to just scuff the, the dirt and get rid of them. But when they get bigger, it becomes four or five times harder to get the weeds out. Don't let them get, up, get ahead of you. Jump on them, get them out of there and um, you will reduce the amount of work and the problems that you'll have after that. Um, I didn't include a slide here, but Alan White says that, the, that weeds, noxious weeds, were a result of the amalgamation of the, of the devil. He basically took things that God had created, amalgamated them, or, or GMO practice of some kind, and developed these noxious weeds that um, are a great pest uh, to us today. You want to eliminate stresses. Watering, um, if you don't supply adequate water to your plants, you create stress for them. And so you want to eliminate any form of stress if you can. If you're growing um, cool weather crops in the heat of the summer, then you want to have sprinklers or something that will uh, reduce the temperature down and so that they don't have the, the same pressure that um, they will have trying to grow out of season. 
Um, I like to grow things in season. I, I tried growing things out of season, and, and you spend a lot of time combating the, 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 um, the problems that come as a result of it. So I don't have, I can't get into detail, but as far as like when you're growing tomatoes, that seems to be a common problem where you have blossom and rot. Um, proper irrigation eliminates that typically. And um, the picture that I previously had there was a tensiometer. Um, and a tensiometer is a way of measuring uh, and, and knowing how much water is needed. Tomatoes need a deep watering. If you just are doing a regular watering like you do for any other vegetables, it's a shallow watering that usually affects the top 12 inches. Tomatoes, if the soil conditions are right, will put their roots down 8 feet. And so when they're trying to, to draw up water and it's dry in the lower zone, then they're not able, the moisture helps the calcium be ta uh, taken up into the plants and so that uh, they, it prevents this uh, blossom end rot. And anyone who's grown tomatoes has had to deal with, I'm sure, with this uh, problem. So I can't get into more detail because of time, but uh, if you do a Google search, tensiometer, um, there's an irrigation company called Berry Hill Irrigation. They sell them, um, and it's well worth the money to, to buy them and put them in. Uh, the, the next principle is provide habitat for beneficial insects and birds and etc that can work for you in combating pests that uh, will um, that will be a problem. One of the things that is promoted with this IPM pro, uh, program is putting in uh, hedgerows, typically native type of plants and flowers that provide habitat for beneficial insects and um, it works. There's uh, things like ladybugs. You're probably familiar with ladybugs. You can even buy them from some of the stores to release, and they'll eat aphids and other things. Um, but if you put in a hedgerow or plants that, that provide habitat for them, you don't have to go and buy the ladybugs. They come to you because you've provided them with food and, and, and habitat. So uh, plant some of these things, flowers and, and so forth will provide that. And these ladybugs and, and lacewings and other um, insects will, will go and eat the bugs and reduce the pressure. I probably should have said more about reducing the stresses because really, if you've observed in your garden, the healthy plants are the last ones to get attacked. It's the ones that are a little bit sick, the ones that are stressed that the bugs go straight for. They target them. And so um, doing everything you can, and uh, I may not have uh, put much in here about foliar feeding. Has anyone done foliar feeding where you do sprays and feed the leaves? The, the plants, the stomata on the leaves, open up at night. So in the evening as the sun's going down, they open up and they close up in the morning as the sun comes out. If you'll do a foliar feed of some kind of... Um, you know, kelp, uh, worm casting tea or, or compost teas and that sort of thing. They absorb the nutrients and they become much more robust and um, have a better chance at uh, combating pests and diseases. This is a picture of a lacewing um, and they will move in and start eating the bugs. This is a, a bird, I don't know if you have them in your area, but we have bluebirds in California in these nest boxes, if you put an inch and five-eighth hole in the nest box, then only the bluebirds will move into them. 
and they eat an amazing amount of, of bugs. When they have their nest in there and they're feeding their young, you can watch them and they're just flying backwards and forwards, continually feeding these little bugs that they've been catching off the plants. Um, and there are other birds that will do that as well. Bat boxes. Bats will eat moths, and uh, moths are often, if you uh, have an orchard and a coddling moth and, and other things, if you put up bat boxes, um, the bats will go to work for you and eat them, as well as the pesky uh, mosquitoes that bite you when you work in your garden. So uh, bat boxes are really highly recommended, um, and they will reduce your pressure. Um, barn owls. If you put up a barn owl box, a uh, nest box, or several of them, um, the barn owls will move in, and they eat a lot of the rodents and the, the little pests. They, uh, in fact, the, I've read some of the statistics. They eat an incredible number of them in a season. And um, so if you're having problems, we have sweet potatoes, and they like the little voles like to eat in the, the sweet potatoes. And um, The only reason we have not put up the barn owl nest boxes is because... We live right next to the, or the farm backs right onto railway tracks and a freeway. And the recommendations are if you're within a mile of, of the train tracks or a freeway, barn owls fly low and they, they fly right in front of traffic or trains and, and get hit and killed. And um, so it's not, we're not in the best situation. But if we weren't, I would be putting them in. But I'm sharing it with you because you may not be in that situation. So another um, natural predator is uh, there's different uh, raptors and you can put up a pole that they like to perch on and they will come and sit on top of that pole and they will look down and see critters in your garden and they will fly down and eat them. So we, we did put up some poles and definitely uh, we would see them there sitting and, and, and looking and, and uh, hunting. Um, I was a bit disappointed. We, we have gophers, and um, uh, we, there's gopher snakes too, and gopher snakes are good to have. And um, But one time I saw the, I don't know if it was a falcon, I think it was a falcon sitting up on the raptor pole, and all of a sudden it swooped down and took one of the gopher snakes away. So I wasn't too happy about that. But uh, anyway, they will work for you. This book here is a book that the University of California put out and uh, recommend it. It's uh, called Natural Enemies Handbook, and it tells you all the different types of insects and what are good. And, and, and So there's, there's basically three types of uh, bugs that you're going to find in your garden. You're going to have uh, beneficial ones that are uh, going to prey on the pests and, and uh, take care of them, and you've got ones that basically are there. They do no harm and they do no good. They're just there. And then you've got the pest type. So identifying them um, is really beneficial. And sometimes they're so small you don't know what they are. And you can buy these magnifying lens, these little uh, about an inch diameter magnifying lens. You want probably either a 16 or a 20 times magnification. And when you see something on your leaves, you know, you, you, you go and you, you look at it and, and let it... Uh, um, come into focus and you can see clearly what it is and then with a book or online um, UC Davis has a really good uh, database on, on pests that you can help identify but that's California, it can be very different out here and I think Tim will probably speak more about uh, identifying your pests and, and what to do with that so when it comes to spraying 
um, the spray that we've found to be most effective and to do the least amount of harm has been neem oil. And this is just one brand. There's many types of neem oil out there. In fact, um, the, the active ingredient in it is called azadiractin. And azadiractin is... Um, uh, it's a very small percentage of the, of the neem oil. And there is a product out there called Nemix. And that they've basically extracted the, the azadiractin out of the neem oil. And it's very expensive. You get a quart and it costs about uh, $200 for a quart. But it goes a long way when you're mixing up a, a, one of those solo backpack sprayers. It holds four gallons. You only put about two teaspoons of it in there. So um, <clears throat> it, it goes a long way. There's, um, if you have a home garden, Safer, the Safer brand, they put out neem uh, products that you can use that are a lot less expensive. So this is the Nemix one here. It's um, produced by Certus. Um, Peaceful Valley Farm Supply sell it, and there's probably other places that you can get it from. So there's two other active ingredients in neem oil that are less uh, active as the, than the and There's selenin and melendriol. Um, and this is how it basically works. As an insect growth regulator, um, basically it works on juvenile hormones the insect larva feeds when it grows and it sheds the old skin and starts growing. This particular shedding of old skin is the phenomenon of ecdysis or molting is governed by an enzyme ectosone. When the neem components, especially as a direct and enter into the body of the larvae, the activity of ectosone is suppressed and the larva fails to molt and then it remains in the larval stage and ultimately dies. <coughs> if, the if the concentration of azadiractin is not sufficient, the larva manages to enter the pupal stage but dies at this stage, and if the concentration is still less, the adult emerging from the pupa is 100% malformed, absolutely sterile, without any capacity for reproduction. Uh, as a feeding deterrent, the most important property of neem is its feeding deterrence. When an insect larva sits on the leaf, the larva is hungry and wants to feed on the leaf. This particular trigger of feeding is given through the maxillary gland. Peristalsis in the alimentary canal is speeded up. The larva feels hungry and it starts feeding on the surface of the leaf. When the leaf is treated with a neem product, because of the presence of azadract and selenin and melendriol, there is an anti-peristaltic wave in the alimentary canal, and this produces something similar to a vomiting sensation in the insect. Because of the sensation, the insect does not feed on the neem-treated surface. Its ability to swallow is blocked. So if the, if the uh, insect does not get the spray on it, when it, if it flies in after you have sprayed, then there's a repellent um, effect that comes as a result of that. And... Um, so basically, mating as well as sexual communication is disrupted. Is disrupted. Larvae and adults of insects are repelled. Adults are sterilized. Larva and uh, adults are poisoned. So it's quite an effective one. It's very broad spectrum. It works on um, most insects, and it's not too harmful to your beneficial insects. In other words, um, when you spray it, the, it might knock them back a little bit, but it doesn't eliminate them. They come back. And um, so it works in harmony with the IPM 
uh, practice. You can spray it with a small hand sprayer, you can spray it with a backpack sprayer if you've got you know, a larger area, or you can spray it you know, with a commercial uh, sprayer like that you see in the picture. Um, but we've found that to be the most effective. There are many different um, organic uh, natural pesticide type of sprays out there. Another one that's quite common is Pyganic. It's um, an extract from the chrysanthemum uh, flowers. And it works. It's not as effective as neem, it's, and it's more expensive to use. So I'm just sharing you, with you what we've found to be the best and most, most effective uh, from cost and um, everything else. Uh, the other thing is the neem does have some nutritional benefits, so when you spray it on the leaves, it actually benefits the plant a little bit that way as well. So as a result of these practices, you end up with uh, beautiful crops and uh, the pests are kept at bay and you enjoy your garden immensely and, and uh, gives you a lot of pleasure. So basically, I've given you a very fast uh, overview of the IPM. Uh, well, this is an only an hour class and, and Tim has the, uh, the next um, half of it. But are there any questions? I could, I could probably take a minute now just for any questions. Yes, brother. Yes, they do. Yes. Thank you for reminding me. So the question was, do they work on whitefly? And yes, yes, it does work on whitefly. Uh, I saw a hand here and then over here. Yes. Nico, yes. No. It's just purely a brand name. It's an Indian product. The neem tree grows in India, and it's a seed pod that gets pressed for the oil, and uh, it only comes from India. So it's just a brand name. Some American companies have got the neem oil, and then they've branded it, and uh, that's just one that I've used, and, and there's many out there. That what were you spraying with this? What crops were we spraying with this? We were spraying, we've used it on uh, primarily... I don't have to do a lot of spraying because of these principles that I've shared with you. But um, when you're growing in high tunnels, you are in an artificial environment and some pests flourish in that environment. So with our cucumbers, uh, we had a black bean aphid that was giving problems. And so I would do a weekly spray on it as a preventative. So if they start eating, they get you know repelled. If you wait until you have an infestation, you, uh, it's, it's more difficult to, to deal with. Um, so I, just once a week spray seemed to keep them away and, and there were no issues with that. In addition, I've used it in the orchard. Um, I've used it on kale and uh, Swiss chard and some of the greens, you know, for aphids. But again, I was growing them out of season in the, in the warmer, you know, part of the year where... Um, the pest pressure is, is really high. Let me just share this with you. If, you. if you have to deal with aphids, you probably do. Aphids are all female. They're born pregnant. And for every five degrees increase above, I believe it's 75 degrees, they multiply a thousand times more. So the hotter it is, the greater the, the multiplication. So um, when you grow, they love the cool weather crops. So um, when you're trying to grow them out of season you're going to really be combating them. Yes, brother over here. Uh, two questions. Yes. What, what type of vinegar, what type of ladybugs? I'll let you answer that first. 
I don't know in your area, but in California, there's two that um, that we grow as, fellow, as well as wildflowers. Uh, the what are the calendrum? What? How do you say it? Calendra. Um, we also have coyote brush and toyon that seems to you know house them as well as other beneficial insects. But flowers in general, you know, if you if you plant a few wildflowers, um, they will help. The question was, what uh, flowers or what bushes um, would you plant for ladybugs to, to habitat? Yes. I haven't had trouble with aphid ants. I don't even know what they look like. But um, I would try the neem on them. Um, but if they're not, if they're coming in from outside, from uh, outside of the growing area. You could try some diatomaceous earth. I don't like to use diatomaceous earth on the growing area because it's like glass and very or like razor blades and it's harmful to beneficial insects as well. So I uh, prefer to leave that outside of the, the growing area. So if you see them trailing in from outside, that would put, put it across their path so they have to go through uh, that or at the source where they're coming out of the ground or Something like that. Yes, one more question, and then I have to give the time to Tim. So, yes. Why would neem oil be primarily bad for destructive insects and not beneficial insects? It will, it will um, knock back the beneficial insects, but here's the difference. Uh, the question is, uh, why would neem be... Um, why would it... Sorry, restate it so I have, I have it clear in my mind. Sorry? Right. Why doesn't it harm the, the, as harmful? Uh, it's because of the residual effect, I, I believe, that, um, that the beneficial insects are not eating your plants. They eat the bugs that eat your plants. So they come back more readily because they're not being repelled by eating the, the plants. Okay. Uh, where's Tim? Yeah, thank you. Okay, the, the question was about aphid ants. The aphid ants uh, infect the root zone of the plant. They, they suck juices from the roots, and right around the stem, there'll be like a little pile, uh, and you know your, your plants have been affected with the aphid ants. And they're not on surface. I've, I've used diatomaceous earth around, and it really hasn't helped that much. Okay, because... I have seen that at my parents' place in Michigan, but um, out in California, I have never seen that. But um, we do have non-native Argentine ants there, and they are very symbiotic with the aphids. And it's a big issue for us because they, um, like they have a massive network that they all, um, within different colonies of ants, work together. And so unlike some ant colonies that are native, or I should say ant species that are native to North America, there will be some competition between the different ants. These ones like act like a super colony. And um, they bring in the aphids as soon as they find a you know, potential host plant. Um, and also about white flies. I heard someone ask a question about those. And there's... Um, there are some beneficial insects that you can use that specifically target whiteflies. Um, Incarcia formosa is a very small um, parasitic wasp that lays its egg on the pupa of the whitefly. 
and it'll prevent it from maturing, and that, um, that parasitic wasp will grow inside of the um, developing whitefly and kill it and then hatch into another wasp. And the benefit of a beneficial insect like that, unlike a ladybug, is that in order for it to complete its life cycle, it has to parasitize a whitefly pupa. So those are um, a very beneficial um, natural pest control option. So as we are striving to restore the waste places on a planet that is waxing old like a garment, challenges with pests and disease will be almost inevitable, especially in the early developmental stages. Another factor is the development of the experience of the grower. Um, as you're learning how to combat pests, you're going to make mistakes, but you can learn from those mistakes. I do not claim to be an expert in this whatsoever, but I can share with you some things that I've learned. And the bulk of my experience has been using beneficial insects to control um, the pests. As Darren was mentioning, the pest populations can get out of hand very quickly. With aphids, um, they have a, an extremely fast reproductive rate. He mentioned how they, um, their, their reproductive rate is about one and a half live young per day, and the females are born pregnant. So you can see how that could get out of hand pretty fast. Um, in just a matter of a month, the, the numbers just skyrocket. And if you're noticing it in like the, you know, one to nine day time frame, you can do something about it right then and there, and you, sh you should be able to get it under control. If you're noticing the problem when you're close to the 25 day mark, you can see that it's gonna be a little bit more severe if you don't get on it right then. Um, biological pest control is a bioeffector method of controlling pests using other living organisms. It relies on predation, parasitism, herbivory, and other natural mechanisms, but typically involves an active human management role. And it's often referred to as IPM. It's a fundamental component of sustainable pest control, and it works with nature and the checks and balances that God created and it dramatically reduces the need for more invasive controls when, po when properly managed. So here are some um, beneficial organisms that are specialists, meaning that they target specific pest species. This is Aphidolides aphidomyza, and the larva will feed on soft-bodied, small soft-bodied insects, especially aphids. Um, you can see it says up to 70 species of aphid. This parasitic wasp, Aphidius colomani, is like the Incarcia that I mentioned for whitefly in that it only, um, the only way it can complete its life cycle is by parasitizing an aphid. These um, metallic looking aphids are actually mummified aphids that are gonna hatch into more wasps. When using beneficial insects, it is extremely important to release them as soon as the pest is detected. Once the pest population gets out of hand, it'll take much longer to achieve control with beneficials. If you have that, you know, 30-day mark of that 
aphid pest pressure, it's going to take a while for the, the beneficials to catch up. They're non-stinging. Yeah, those ones are about um, four millimeters, five millimeters long, and they're not a, um, a threat to humans, fortunately. Yeah, most of the time people use those in a greenhouse because they're somewhat contained. Um, as long as you have good habitat for them, they should stick around for a while. But you can never know for sure. And um, once, once you have, I would say, some aphidias, the aphid parasite present, they should stick around in that area as long as you have some aphids around. But if there's nothing left for them to feed on, they will die out. And her question was, will those bugs stay if you release them? And it's really up to the bug. We can't really control that. Um, <laughs> exactly, they stay where there's food. And when I was at Sunny Zona Family Farms, I worked with an entomologist on a you know, monthly basis, and she taught me about using banker plants. And a banker plant is when you take a crop that you're not going to harvest, so you might grow wheats in a pot, wheat in a pot, like you would wheatgrass, and you infect it with a um, monocot um, aphid that will um, grow on that wheat. And it's not going to spread to your dicot plants like tomatoes or lettuce. And by providing that um, crop of wheat for those aphids, you'll always have something for those aphids to go to, and the aphidias will follow along and parasitize them, and you'll always have a continual habitat for them. And the beneficiary um, hedgerows, those also provide habitat for the um, beneficials. Um, so in order to detect your problem early, you need to be out in your crop looking for the problems before they get out of hand. So scouting is systematically walking through a greenhouse or field on a regular basis. You're examining the plants to determine the pest pressure, the, the population of the pest, as well as diseases and other issues. So here's our enemy, the white fly. Has anyone had any issues, issues with this pest? Especially in the more temperate and tropical parts of the country. Um, they can become a real issue with um, many crops. And as you can see here, they can um, basically become like a, almost like a mold. It looks like there's just a film of white over some of the plants. Um, they can be very tricky to spray with like soap and things like that because they're usually on the underside of the leaf. And so to um, control them by spraying can be quite challenging. But fortunately, there is a beneficial um, insect that will parasitize them, and that's the one I was mentioning, Encarcia formosa. This little guy is one millimeter long, and he just goes around as soon as he hatches and finds a um, white fly to parasitize. Encarcia formosa. There are other subspecies, but that's the one I've worked with the most. I I do not know exactly how much they cost, but I have a link to a website where um, you can find out more information. I think you can get 
um, you get little sachets that have the um, parasitized white fly, and then they hatch um, once you release them. And I think you can get it for less than $30 for a small package. So all of those black dots are parasitized white fly larvae. Here's the life cycle of the, the wasp. Another small pest is the tomato russet mite. You might notice on your tomato plants a browning color starting at the base of the plant, gradually moving up, sometimes desiccating the leaves, causing the fruit to be very ugly and tough. Um, another challenge with this pest is that you really can't see it. And that's what it looks like if you were to get a close look. That's a slightly different species of mite, but just to give you an idea of what it would be like. Um, Darren mentioned using a scope or a small lens to magnify the, um, the pest. And I've used these ones for um, scouting and identifying the pests many times. They work really well. You can um, adjust the, the focus, and they work great for identifying if you have russet mite. All you have to do is take a small piece of electrical tape, put it on the stem where you think you may have some russet mite, and then put that on the end of the scope. And you can take a look, and if you, if you see movement on the little mites, then you know that they're alive and they're still an issue. The thing is, if you have the um, browning, it does not necessarily mean that there are mites there because it will remain even if the pests are dead. So it's best to take a look to see if you actually have it. So this is a company that provides many different beneficial organisms for sale, Arbico Organics. Um, we recently, in California, we recently got some of these assassin bugs, and these are such cool bugs. They just devour all sorts of pests. Did everyone get that if they needed it? Okay. Um, and here are a few um, contrasting beneficial insects. The one on the left is a familiar one, a praying mantis. And you probably won't even see the one on the right. But on the top picture, in the left corner, um, near the center of the plant, you can see a, a caterpillar. Those can be pretty um, frustrating bugs to have on your vegetables. And while I was picking basil a couple weeks ago, I turned a leaf and I saw this web-like thing with a brown um, mummified caterpillar. Um, and those little black dots that you can barely see were hundreds of little parasitic wasps that had just killed the, the caterpillar. And, you know, there's oftentimes beneficial things out there that you can't see, but um, by not spraying, you're, you're leaving a better environment for them. And it's just fascinating to me that even though there are pests, God has a solution with these beneficial insects. And if you go to that website, Arbico, you can see you know, tons more information and other beneficial insects. There's a close-up. So when you've invested hundreds or thousands of dollars in labor, seeds, amendments, infrastructure, you're not going to give up and give in to those pests without a fight. You won't give up even if you lose the fight to the pests or disease. You're going to learn from the challenges, and you'll be better faced um, to... Um, 
you'll be better prepared to solve those problems before they come the next year. But because you're not going to give up, you're going to fight those pests until you know, you've exhausted every resource you have. So what are some other ways you can control the pests? Um, we don't want to use um, chemical sprays like, um, let's say, um, Seven, a commonly used garden pesticide that's not organic, and it's a known neurotoxin that affects humans as well. So obviously we need to find um, less, um, less destructive and potentially um, dangerous to the environment and to humans means of controlling the pests. So some preventative controls to emphasize plant health and to follow good sanitization practices. If you're getting um, tools and supplies from another farmer, there's, there could be unknown um, pests or diseases coming along with those items. If you're visiting another farm and you're touching the plants, you may not be realizing it, but you could actually be transferring something to your farm. And usually farmers are not thought of as super hygienic. I mean, they usually have dirt under their fingernails and things like that. But to just be a little bit cautious about um, bringing something to your farm or your garden is a good idea. It's also important to start with quality seeds and transplants. If it looks off, it probably is, and you probably want to avoid those transplants. If they look like they might have a pest, you don't want to risk bringing that to your property. It's really important to keep your seedlings healthy. If you don't, then you're not going to have healthy plants. And another concern is vectors. So not only do you have an issue with the pest itself, the pest can transmit a disease to the um, plant. So that can be viruses. Um, like um, in Arizona, we had a cucurbit yellow stunting disorder virus that just devastated the cucumber plants, and it was transmitted by white flies. So the white flies were one problem, but if we had that virus, the crop just pretty much failed. So you need to be on top of those, those pests from when the plants are really small. Um, in, sorry, in California, we have had some issues with virus on our cucurbits and squashes. Um, and if those aphids are on those transplants when they're small, then they could potentially be giving that virus to the plant even before it's in the ground. You can see on the right picture that small green thing underneath the table. That's an eight bait station, not eight, ant bait station, excuse me. And those ants, those Argentine ants, would be up on the tables moving aphids around like you would not believe. Um, you'd have it in a little pocket on the table one day and in a couple days there were aphids everywhere on the plants. Um, and we noticed that the aphids, I'm sorry, the ants also liked the honey in the bumblebee hive. So you can see we put a little barrier for them there, but um, we actually have not found a very successful way of controlling the ants. So the, the best ways are trying to exclude them and, and just reduce the amount of pressure they can um, cause on the plants while they're small. Really? I did not know that.
So her, her comment was that she worked with a lady in Oklahoma who would put out corn during the, um, probably during the day when it's still dry, and then at night, um, after they had fed on that corn, the corn would expand after they had, you know, gotten some moisture in their system, and it would cause the ants to pop. And she's saying corn grits also work for that. No. The Argentine ant is a very small um, ant. It does not usually bite. Um, it does not usually bite people. Um, but I don't know if it's even on the East Coast or the eastern half of the U.S. It's, it was recently accidentally introduced into California, and it's been spreading. Some physical controls of pests are row covers. Are you all familiar with row covers? It's a thin protective barrier. lets the light and air through, um, but excludes the, the pest. This works especially good for things like kale and broccoli to exclude cabbage moths. Um, screens and nettings, traps, pheromones and lures, and flaming. Um, what, what I would recommend with flaming is you might have like a trap crop where you're trying to bring the the pest over to a non-productive crop. So we have a small bug called the Bagrata bug in California that completely decimates um, members of the kale family. So we're growing alyssum, the flower, and they really like that too. And so then we can just flame it and kill the, the pest in this trap crop. Some cultural controls. Crop rotation and cover cropping, it breaks up the predictability of um, always having a food source for the pest. Um, I mentioned the trap crops providing beneficial insect habitat. Proper plant spacing is really important. If you have the plants really close together, it's just like an endless highway of food for them. And there's nothing to prevent them from moving from plant to plant. Um, some interplanting can be beneficial. It can be also logistically complicated. So I personally do not do much of it, but if you have the option of doing long rows instead of a whole bunch of short rows, then you might have some ways of breaking up the, um, the similar types of crops that are all attractive, attractive to the same pest. Um, timing the plantings appropriately will help to um, give the plant its best bet of growing by putting it in the season that it grows best in. And here's an example of a trap crop. In California, we have this bug called ligus bug, and I believe it's also called the tarnished plant bug. Do you know if that's the case? Okay. Um, they cause that very ugly um, marking and um, cat face damage to the strawberries, and it really makes them almost unsellable and it kind of ruins the texture as well. And in the middle of this row here, you can see the alfalfa that's been planted. And that's because this ligus bug is very attracted to alfalfa. So by growing a crop that they like more than your um, food crop, you can isolate them from, from the strawberries in this example. And that's another beneficial that I'm not too familiar with. So, when you do have to use insecticides, do not go to Home Depot and grab this. This is not a paid promotion. <laughs> um, it is a known neurotoxin.
Um, it's not. It's not. It's usually a, a good bet to look for stuff that does say OMRI listed. Those items would be approved for organic use. OMRI listed, O-M-R-I. Is, is that the Organic Materials Review Institute or something like that? Yeah. So here are some examples of um, approved and biologically sound pesticides. You can use insecticidal soap. There's safer, there's impede. Um, I've heard of even just using Dr. Bronner's soap. Um, neem products, which include azadiractin, um, Nemix. Pyganic, it's derived from chrysanthemums. And repellents, there's some of that in neem oil, but also things like garlic oil, clove oil. It just makes the, the plant undesirable by adding that um, to the leaf surface. Plant-based, go ahead. Have you ever heard of using rock salt? For deterring? I haven't heard that, no. The question was, have you ever used mothballs moth around your garden? And um, Darren commented that it makes it very unpleasant to be in your garden. Um, Plant-based oils would be used as a surfactant to spray on the, the stem in particular of a plant. That will combat things like spider mites and tomato russet mite. It just suffocates them. It kind of sounds like warfare of some sort at times when you're controlling the, the pests. There are beneficial fungal inoculants. Um, you can get root shield. It's a, um, it's a beneficial fungus that assists the, um, the roots of the plant in warding off um, harmful fungus. There are beneficial bacteria like spinosad and Bt, Bacillus thuringiensis. Um, BT is often used for cabbage loopers and other caterpillars. If you got the Johnny's catalog, check out this page that gives a lot of information about organic and um, other recommended ways of controlling pests. Um, in this picture on the right, you can see there's a small brown mark on the stem of the tomato plant. And that damage is caused by a bug called um, Ingetatus modestus. And I'm going to step from the mic for a second, but that's the, the bug right there. It's, it kind of looks like an aphid, and it pierces into the stem of the tomato plant. And while you're working with the tomato plant, if it um, if you touch an area that's been damaged by that bug, the top just snaps right off. So, um, you know, what do you do when you find this bug that you've never heard of and you've never seen before? And I have been able to find this resource online. I believe it's bugguide.com. Just search bug guide and you should be able to find it. But it'll have a lot of information as to identifying um, all sorts of insects. And then this one from Cornell University is, um, I believe this one is just tomato disease identification, but it can be a helpful resource if you don't know what you're dealing with and it can give some um, 
suggestions as to what may be going on with your your plant. Um, if you just search the vegetable MD online, you should be able to find it, and it's from Cornell University. I don't have the link right here though. And here are two other links that I found really interesting if you would like to check them out. The top one is a whole bunch of information about um, pesticides and it explains conventional and organic type of pesticides and insecticides. Okay, um, grasshoppers, what to do about them? Um, from my understanding with grasshoppers, often by um, rototilling the, the growing area and the surrounding area before the um, grasshopper season starts can disrupt the nymphs and the soil. Um, we had those in Arizona and they got huge. Like there was, you know, grasshoppers like this big. Yeah, I, I have never um, sprayed them. I, I know there we would often just kind of give like a, an extra buffer and we just knew that they were gonna eat some of that. But I mean, when you have a hundred foot row, that's different than a home garden where you can't really provide as much of that. Yeah, yeah I, I have heard of people using guineas and chickens. Is that what you're gonna say? Yeah, I believe Alan Seiler has guineas specifically for that purpose. And I would also try um, insect netting or agribon as like a protective cover. I have seen grasshoppers chew through netting. So if they're really desperate, they may just go for it. But a lot of what you do with organic um, pest control is sometimes just trying to make your plants look less desirable to them or you know restrict their access to it. Yes. Um, I do not have a lot of experience with squash bugs. Um, however, I, I know that insecticidal soaps are often effective at controlling them. You can also get beneficial, um, beneficial um, nematodes that will parasitize the, the larva in the soil. Um, do you have any experience with? Okay. Um, so the question was, what about squash bugs and um, Darren has heard a recommendation of using bitter melons. I've also heard that they're very attracted to the blue Hubbard squash. So that's worth a shot to see if they will, you know, go for some of your, um, like, I don't know how many people like bitter melons, but it, it, it's like an acquired taste. But if they like it better, then give it to them. And then you can also concentrate your spraying and your control in that area because they're more likely to be there. Are those the brown marmorated stink bug? <laughs> Those are a nasty pest. Um, you know, I, I don't have much experience with those. I wish, I'm sure like a lot of farmers and probably all of the California, um, you know, ag departments are trying to figure out ways to control them, but those are pretty, pretty difficult pests. Does anyone have any experience with brown marmorated stink bugs? Yeah, and Mexican bean beetles. So they're a seasonal pest, they don't last the whole season? Okay, yeah. Multiple times in a season? I mean, maybe in the north they have you know one life cycle per season, I don't know too much about them, but definitely giving it a shot with an early planting, maybe trying some different varieties to see if they go for one first. 
And you could also use um, the Agrabon as a soil warmer, and it just kind of keeps those plants a little bit warmer at night, and so you could get the green beans in a couple weeks early maybe. Any other questions or comments? Um, so, and a lot of it is, is learning as you go and, um, and you know, going to um, farmers in your area and, you know, really developing relationships with people who have more experience because I've learned that I feel like my, my crop is a reflection of my experience and my, my character. And so as I'm developing these, I want to, you know, find the solutions so that I can improve each year and each season. Any other questions? All right. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you that you provide the garden and um, nature as a source of so many object lessons and truths of what you want to teach us for our own spiritual lives. And thank you that in spite of sin, you have many solutions and um, most importantly, the solution of a new world and um, redemption from this sin-corrupted planet. And we thank you for that. And as we um, return to our gardens, whether that's next week or next spring, I pray that you will um, help us to implement effective controls so that we can really be a testimony to those around us of your goodness and I pray that you would, you would rebuke the devourer for your sake. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.